Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Lupe Fiasco's Drogas Wave. Drogas Wave, the second independent release and seventh studio album from the 12-time Grammy Award nominee Lupe Fiasco, is available everywhere now. Drogas Wave is an imaginative conceptual album, the follow-up to Lupe's 2017 Drogas Light. This 24-track double album is one of his most philosophically artistic projects to date. Laced with intricate production, assists from a range of artists including Simon Says and Nicky Jean, and classic Lupe wordplay. Drogas Wave is available everywhere now. Hey guys, it's Liz Kelly, here to tell you that we have a brand new podcast called Halloween Unmasked, premiering Monday, October 1st. Here's a sneak peek. There's trouble in the suburbs. A teenage girl named Lori Strode crosses a quiet street toward an ordinary house to find her friends. But Lori doesn't know that her friends are dead, and she doesn't know that she's walking right toward the masked killer, Michael Myers. The movie is Halloween. And Halloween just, it was like a, it was a breath of fresh, putrid air. He's a pure, unknowable evil. I'm film critic Amy Nicholson, and this is Halloween Unmasked, a podcast series from The Ringer celebrating the remarkable and terrifying rise of America's most revolutionary horror film. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts to Halloween Unmasked, and watch your back. I, I think the scariest part was that he doesn't die at the end. So when you're 10, it's like, that guy's still out there. <laughs> we, we gotta get him. <laughs> Sports have to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me in the studio, his dark materials is this podcast. It's Andy Greenwald! Should we do some personal business at the top of this pod? Because right before we sat <laughs> Why down. Did you ask? Right before we sat down, you were like, I'm not used to your presence. Well, no, I just felt like actually D- Did you miss my musk? We, and this is not a this is not a knock on the commercial viability of this podcast, but we didn't have any advertisements last time. Right. But it didn't even I didn't even feel the need to break. You know? It was just oh. so nice to be around you and just to kind of vibe with you. That I didn't feel the need to like stop everything and be like hotel tonight. Did we not have any pod any ads last week because I am known in the podcast community as a friend to Madison Avenue? <laughs> is that the case? Like is that why do people advertise because because of me? Or not because of you, because you your first show back, there was no pod there was no advertising. <laughs> so right. you came back and they were like right. fucking Chomsky's here. It could swing either way, is what <laughs> yeah, you're saying. That's right. Okay. Uh Greenwald, it is Thursday. Uh today we are gonna talk a little bit about this fantasy TV bubble that I'm kind of wondering if we're about to enter. Yeah. Because we've had some news over the last like 10 days or so. There's some release dates firmed up. There are some teases coming about several rather expensive, rather epic fantasy television shows or television shows based on like acclaimed fantasy novels. And I kind of wanted to talk about this shift because it's obviously, I think a while ago we talked about Jeff Bezos' desire to find his own Game of Thrones for Amazon, and that was a directive that he was giving Amazon Television, and it looks like they are really trying in earnest to satisfy his desires. That fifteen dollars an hour really comes in handy. Yeah, when it comes to reading reading sci fi novels. Okay, Chomsky. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we're gonna talk about that. Yeah, and we can talk about Saul. We both watched this most recent episode. Yep. You want to talk about Chris Evans? I feel like we should begin with some somber news. Yeah, guys, right as we were sitting down to record, yeah, breaking news. I saw a prominent Hollywood trade publication tweet 
that it seems like. Now, I'm sorry. I hope you're sitting down. I am. And if you are driving, please pull safely to the side of the road. I hope you're sitting down if you're driving as well. And put your car in neutral. Apparently, Avengers 4 might be Chris Evans' swan song as Captain America. (laughs) Now, they've been keeping this pretty close to the vest. You know, if there's one thing Chris Evans has not been doing for the last two to four years is saying publicly every opportunity he had. I'm really tired of That he could not wait to fucking put down the shield. (laughs) Yeah. I mean— And then his performance in the the most recent Avengers movie that was Infinity War— is like a precursor to Jackson Maine in A Star is Born. He's basically this, like, <laughs> he looks like Father John Steve, what's yeah. his face? Yeah. What's his name? Father John Misty. No, what's Steve's name? What's his last name? Which Steve, Chris? The Steve. Is it Steve Connors? No, I just want you to flail on this <laughs> island here. Keep going. What's Captain America's real name? Captain America's real name is Captain Steve Rogers. Right. From New York City, New York. <laughs> okay. 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 All right. Yeah, he's been feeling a little rusty for a while, and then today he tweeted, officially wrapped on Avengers 4. It was an emotional day, to say the least. Mm. Playing this role over the last eight years has been an honor to everyone in front of the camera, behind the camera, and in the audience. Thank you for the memories. Actually, that's got an exclamation point, so I didn't do a good read of that. So I think the only Eternally grateful. safe conclusion here is that for... Avengers 5, he yes. will be taking on the mantle of Nomad, the character name that Steve Rogers took on when he gave up the shield. Or he'll just come back as Captain Steve Connors, <laughs> formerly the drummer of Fleet Foxes. Do you think he's just going to show up with a beard and be like, uh, <laughs> hey guys, hey, hey, Steve Connors here. I just want to throw out there that okay. yeah. there is already, right. Deep Web is saying, this is a Marvel marketing gimmick. Guys, I say this to the Deep Web just as I say it to the casual fan. Let's not do this. We don't have to do this. There's going to be an Avengers movie in next, seven, next seven months. Next spring, yeah. Guess what? I'm probably going to like it. We're going to talk about it on the podcast. He's definitely not going to be Captain America anymore after that movie. Okay. I think fine. It, Let's I, just not do this whole thing. There's a distinction between whether or not he's like, you have seven months to prepare for Captain America to die. Or, wow. like, I'm not going to keep doing this role. Like, I, you know, like, because I think that I don't know who disappears and who doesn't disappear yeah. and whether Doctor Strange gets them all back or whatever. But, you know, look, there's a difference between dying and, like, just I'm not going to continue this role. Someone else will. Yeah. Also, yo, money is a real son of a bitch, man. Like, he will come back at some point, <laughs> even if it's just to put in a couple drum fills as drummer Steve <laughs> Connors or whatever on the, on the bootleg. It's just, I just, I, I, I've, maybe this is a sign of my recent um, abstemious culture diet. Yes. But I don't want to do this. You no, know what I, mean? I you, 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 one of the pods you missed, I was talking with, um, I think it was with Fennessy a little, no, it was Concepcion. And we were talking about DC movies that are coming out soon. Yeah. And we were talking about how, like, there's been already, like, footage from the set of the Joker and lots of pictures from the Joker. And they're, they're like, really being yeah. kind of, like, I don't know if I'd say inclusive and transparent, but like they are trying to share with the world the idea, the world of this movie. Great, and that is counter to what Marvel usually does, which is keep everything in a locked box and try to like misdirect people and say you know it's like develop enough anticipation around the actual first weekend so that people go into it being like I don't know what's going to happen. Well, here's I have two things to say about that. One. 
by the way, Warner Brothers DC, your policy of doing the opposite of everything Marvel does, like Marvel makes fun, popular movies, and you make turgid, miserable, unpopular films, like this is a great strategy. Always do the opposite. Bravo. <laughs> Two, bring me the Joker films. Yeah. Drown me in an ocean of Jokers. <laughs> Are you serious? No. <laughs> Three, this actually is a good segue into... I don't know if you talked about this, because as previously noted, I yeah, don't do. listen to the podcast. But by the way, thanks for the great work while I was gone. Sure. Two, are you aware that there is a streaming service called DC Universe? Do you know this? Yeah. And they have a, a TV show based on the Teen Titans. It's called the Titans. Titans. Yeah. They're grown up. They're all grown up now. <laughs> like the big boy Titans. And it just debuted, and they just, at Comic-Con, they said they're going to make more of them. And... It could be good. Mm-hmm. I have not seen the show. Um, and they're making, uh, a friend of ours, Justin Halpern, is making a Harley Quinn cartoon for them that I think is going to be really good with a lot of people involved, mm-hmm. really talented people. But what worries me about this whole thing, and this is actually directly connected to our conversation that we're going to have about Amazon, is have we completely, it's a two-part thing, have we completely given up on making television for <laughs> adults, a, a broad audience. Yeah, right. Yeah. Television that maybe could appeal to someone other than the people who have been clamoring for the for specifically this show sure. on Reddit message boards or whatever yeah, yeah. for years. Have we completely given up on that idea? And two, does that idea of, of casting a wide net even matter anymore? Because increasingly, a lot of these projects, we always have tried to talk about television shows in the whole scheme of things. So we, we we always try to bring in business considerations when necessary or appropriate to understanding sure. why things yeah, right. got made. We talk about economics. We talk about why shows get renewed even though they are low rated because they are important to the company or they are owned by the company or whatever. We talk about that mm-hmm. stuff whenever possible. But increasingly, it does seem these decisions seem to be entirely business driven. Jeff Bezos saying, I want a Game of Thrones killer, so I'm just going to gobble up all of existing fantasy IP full bubble behavior, basically, being like, I'm just going to grab all this stuff to dominate that market. Similarly, DC Universe could create good shows, and we will pay attention to see if they do. But it's hard to even consider any of these shows as creative enterprises first. What we're thinking, when the first thought about them, honestly, is, okay, Warner Brothers is attempting an OTT service to keep all their stuff in-house and compete in this future battlefield that is increasingly the present battlefield. Yes. So... I realize I've come at this from a potentially cynical place, and maybe you wanted to start from a different place, but it's just wild to me that these are the conversations we're having first and foremost, and that we can even, honestly, that we can have these conversations without having seen any, I mean, first of all, having conversations about shows we haven't seen is the brand for this podcast, well, I think but that it's, it's a, easy to have those it's, conversations It's a fascinating thing on a couple of different levels. For one thing, I think it's hard to underrate the impact that Game of Thrones and Walking Dead have had on the way people think about what television could be. Or should be. Or should be. So we've had CSI as, as a franchise, uh, NCIS as a franchise. Chicago. Chicago as a franchise. City. Law and Order as a franchise. There are franchise shows out there. There have been franchises throughout television history. There's been spinoffs. But I don't know that they've ever captured the 360-degree way in which a show can have an impact on a on on a consumer base the way that Thrones and Walking Dead have merch, tie-ins, conventions, um, all this stuff around it um, that, that not that these shows prop up, but that essentially creates 
it's almost like a portal. It's like almost like the way we used to think of like, well, Yahoo and AOL is where right. the internet starts. Like these shows are where an entire world of pop culture starts for some people. And I think that that is ultimately what those they're searching for with these, whether it's DC, whether it's Lord of the Rings, whether it's, and we'll get into some of the other shows that are being developed right now. The reason why Amazon picks up The Expanse is because they see that the people who like The Expanse fucking love The Expanse. Right. And they will tell their friends about they love right. The Expanse. And they will go to conventions for The Expanse. And they will buy coffee mugs for The Expanse. And they, maybe they can do it all on Amazon. And they will completely internalize and naturalize the process of seeking out television shows on Amazon. Yes. Which is still crucial for some of these services yes. that don't have the— um, assumed ease of use as turning on my television and going to channel 41 or yes. whatever the case may be. Um, that's specifically for, in the case of Amazon, but to your larger point about a portal, similarly for HBO, bringing in the Game of Thrones fandom to the family of HBO viewers, showing them that this is, a, and then showing the ads for their other shows and potentially keeping some of mm -hmm. them, that's vitally important. Um I am completely checked out of the Walking Dead world and universe if I was ever fully checked in. But maybe we should go say for fifteen or twenty. Well, maybe years. we should say thank you to them because Lodge Forty Nine just got a second season renewal somehow on yeah. AMC, and that's I, maybe I, how I, the economics I ascribe work. that entirely to The Rock tweeting about it. The Rock tweeted about Lodge Forty Nine. Like my man Paul Giamatti's show, and then he has he's like, "Here's my favorite line," and then he had like a little little video of it. Really? Wait, The Rock, the guy who's on Ballers. Dwayne Johnson, yeah. Dwayne Johnson from Ballers. <laughs> from Ballers, yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> from Hobbs and Shaw. Uh -huh. Let's talk about some of these shows that are in development. Um, Wheel of Time was just announced recently. It's Robert Jordan's series that he was not able to finish in his lifetime. And uh, that's going to Amazon. And it's uh, being developed by a guy named Rafe Judkins, who wrote on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and Chuck and went to Brown University. Oh, probably a great guy. Yeah. Uh, and... Um, it's part of Amazon's big push to find their own Game of Thrones. They are also on record, and it, it, it's been reported that they are developing, obviously, Lord of the Rings. They're developing Larry Niven's Ringworld. Yeah. Neil Stevenson's Snow Crash. Yeah. And Greg Rucka's Lazarus. So they've got a lot of these kinds of things, and they bought The Expanse, which is sort of in midstream. Yep. Um, Robert Jordan's book, I don't know, I, mean, I didn't read it. I was going to say, have you read any of these? No, have you? No. What's your connection to this sort of stuff? Like Zach Barron telling me I should read these. Is he like and, those? And Mallory and and Jason liking them. I mean, like I don't, I don't, I've never been like a big fantasy person. I mean, here's the thing, right? Like this might be completely old world, old media thinking, but HBO doing a genre show like Game of Thrones was not a slam dunk at the time. People were very confused by it. It seemed déclassé. It seemed below HBO, right? HBO is the place where um, they did Sopranos mm -hmm. and, and The Wire. Why would they do genre? Well, the argument was this is exceptional in a number of ways. One of the ways being it's adult, which was translation for people get fucking killed and they have a lot of sex. Yeah, right. The show is obviously more than that and more complicated than, than that. But David Benioff and D.B. Weiss did a great job along with all the, you know, um, Carolyn, um, my God, I'm blanking on her name, the woman who was in charge of HBO, who is the executive producer of the show, Strauss? It, Carolyn Strauss, yeah. thank you, in getting it to where it needed to be. Shout and convincing Steve Connors. But convincing, <laughs> Captain Steve Connors to you, <laughs> flyboy, convincing everyone that this was HBO-worthy. Yeah. Their bet was right. It wasn't just HBO-worthy. It was 
gen pop worthy. Yeah, but if you go back and watch the first season of Game of Thrones, it feels a lot closer to Deadwood than it does to Lord of the Rings. Yes, and, and I'm saying what they were banking on wasn't that they could use HBO's budget or whatever. It's that they could bring HBO's audience to this world. Yeah. And they certainly did in a way that is truly exciting. There is a channel devoted to genre storytelling called Sci-Fi. Sci-Fi is doing a big push and getting bigger and broader. They just lost The Expanse to Amazon. But they have a bunch of shows that are interesting, and, and you know, Deadly Class is coming out. That looks pretty good. Um, Happy is good. And even so, they are struggling trying to convince people to watch that network that aren't already predisposed to watch it. Mm-hmm. This feels like retrenchment to me, honestly, to say, like, well, we're just going to—you like this sort of storytelling? We're going to buy all the storytelling. Sure. And we're going to do it to a degree that will satisfy you, person who's already read the books. That feels to me where the the ceiling for this. Now, obviously, we haven't seen it, and we could be wrong, but all of it feels a little bit like a bummer and a little bit cynical to me. So there's a couple of things happening, too. I think that they have the budgets to make these shows now. Mm-hmm. So I don't know right, that as 10 shows, years right. ago, television networks were like, we'll go in for a $150 million, $250 million season of television. Yeah, we're not spending summer tentpole exactly. f- film money on a season of television. Right. I mean, even and you hear are. these stories of the, you know, from Mad Men, from Walking Dead of kind of when we consider to be like our, the peaked TV era of stories of like, these showrunners butting heads with networks about like squeezing out dimes here and there to make their shows and also really struggling with like the perception of, yeah, like all the critics may love this show, but yeah. we're really hoping we can get another season out of this. The Wire was like that, you know. Every year. So that's going to kind of go by the wayside because once you start investing this much money, you can't really have, it's not sunk cost if you put in a, almost a billion dollars into Lord of the Rings development. You know what I mean? You have to make that show and it has to be good. I think that what happens, too, is that if you remember, like, season two or three or whatever we were on Game of Thrones. I'm sorry to interrupt you. I don't know if it has to be good. I think it has to be fine. I think it's of value to them if they make something with this big name that convinces all the people who like that name to watch it. That's what I was going to say. It never has to be better than that. Obviously, the people involved are talented and will strive to make it better than that and to try to get as many people as possible to watch it. That I'm not so cynical as to think that the, the people involved aren't giving their heart and soul to it and are hoping for the best and will give it a fair and we will give it a fair shake, of course. But I'm saying from a corporate perspective, what Amazon is is about is growing its audience and growing its library, and it doesn't have to be great. So, do you think that what they have here is like the baseline of interest in this show will mm-hmm. be X? Yes. If we get just an incremental th- amount of more people interested in it, it's literally worth it for us. Yes. I mean, Amazon's business has been one where profit doesn't matter. It's about growth and convincing shareholders that the company's growing. Mm -hmm. Rapacious, constant, wild growth. And, you know, every so often then they would hit on things that actually brought in profit. Like, I think up until recently, the only part of Amazon as a company that was legitimately like old world profitable was their cloud storage business storage right, company. Right. Like that was actually what In was the paying, black, yeah. paying the bills. Um, we are, we talk, when we talk about these services that have gotten into the content business, um, we talk about it like it's funny money, but it is funny money. I mean, these are publicly traded companies, or in the case of Apple, a publicly traded company that just has a trillion dollars in cash 
or whatever yeah. they have, you know, to, to spend. Um, we'll get the first sense of what maybe a fantasy show on Amazon looks like when Good Omens comes out later this year, which is Neil Gaiman's, yeah. you know, uh, it, with D, with, it's, his, it's his show about basically the birth of Satan's son and the I end like of the book. world. Yeah. I read that book. Terry and, Pratchett. Right? Yeah. And Neil Gaiman just signed an overall with Amazon. And he signed an overall with Amazon. Now, they've, let me present a world to you, a TV world to you. Is it a fantasy world? It is, because it's a time in our lives where these shows are all on. I guess Good Omens is probably only going to be like a season, but uh, I have no idea. Wheel of Time, yeah. Neil Gaiman said he's only going to do a season of it. Right. That that was like his, he made a deal, not a deal, he promised Terry Pratchett before he passed away that yeah. he was going to make this show. Wheel of Time, Good Omens this year, whatever. His Dark Materials on BBC, which mm-hmm. I can't remember who's airing that here, but mm-hmm. it's going to be a big deal. James McAvoy is in it. It's Philip Pullman uh, series. Lord of the Rings, eventually, mm-hmm. probably by 2020, I would imagine. Uh, Netflix just bought all seven Chronicles of Narnia books, the C.S. Lewis books. Yeah. Game of Thrones spinoffs, which you would have to imagine, I don't know anything, I swear, but and you don't either, but would have to, I would imagine that we will see a teaser of it at the end of the Game of Thrones run. It, it would be malpractice if they didn't. Right. And King Killer Chronicles, which is the Patrick Rothfuss series Lin-Manuel that Miranda. Lin-Manuel Miranda is working on and is going to star in. So that's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight fantasy shows. Major fantasy. Major fantasy shows that could span seasons. And that's another thing that these that there is attractive about this is like it's the same thing with Game of Thrones where you were like, oh, there's a roadmap. There's like all these characters are here. All these plot points are here. Like all we have to do, not all we have to do, but we are moving the pieces on the chessboard. We're not like, shit, how does he get from Westeros to the to the north? You know, and well, oh, I guess he flies a dragon, you know? I, I don't know, man. That's so, a lot. I had this moment a couple of days ago where I was going to start, I was in the, I'm in the middle of two or three shows right now. Okay. You know, I'm like in, I'm watching two or three non-comedy so they're they're they require a little bit more like you know intellectual investment to track everything that's going on and i was gonna start a fourth my wife and i were like oh should we give this a shot and i was like i don't even know if i can handle one right now like Mm -hmm. i don't know if i can keep Mm -hmm. all the plot points straight now i'm 40 and i'm i'm on the back nine of my life here right so (laughs) whoa (laughs) no do we need to i was watching maniac and i was like i forget something i i was like forgetting things that were happening earlier in the season of maniac do you know what I mean? Like, so this is, I'm just saying density wise in terms of like the amount of stuff people are going to be processing, the amount of starts and and middles people are going to be going through here with these shows. That's a lot. It's but a very distinctive like experience to he, watch a show he, like Game of Thrones. Here's why they've broken the system. And here's why they've broken the system that supports us doing a podcast. If we had Amazon executives here talking to us about their decision to buy these shows or develop these projects, I think they would probably be very candid about the fact that they don't care if we watch them week to week over seven seasons over the next 10 years. They don't care. Right. They care that they exist in their library so that someone can watch them obsessively next year and in 20 years. I don't, again, I don't know the numbers, but just anecdotally, I would, from my own life having children, I would have to imagine that a large, reliable, beautiful, healthy chunk of change in Disney's tax sheets. Oh, yeah. If they do them, is <laughs> if <they> everyone do- <laughs> like me buying Star Wars for $20 to show their kids, buying Beauty and the Beast. Air quotes, their kids. To show their kids. <laughs> yeah. And themselves. Yeah. Because now it's time to watch those things. Yeah. You know, 
the lesson of the binge culture in television really isn't about people who watch all of Ozark season two in one weekend, Chris. It's <laughs> about people who maybe are between jobs or on summer vacation. But don't and you someone think- recommends that to them and they watch it then. And it doesn't, and it's unstuck in time. But don't you think that these specific titles elicit a different kind of fandom? I think possibly, but I also like think it is a— obsessive investment in the shows that's going to be like, I can't possibly wait more than five seconds it's, to watch this. But it's this. such a closed-circuit fandom that worries me. The other thing that we don't talk about as much with Game of Thrones that made it such an appealing property when it began to develop it is that it was unfinished. Now, I know it's still unfinished in terms of the books, but it felt current in that the excitement from people who had read the books and who hadn't was in some way shared mm-hmm. for books that— you know, like like the Narnia books, books that are that are settled canon. These books exist. It is just putting on a show. You know, it's just throwing more money at them to create a beautiful version of them. It's hard for it, for me to imagine it being anything else, and it's hard for me to imagine that fandom growing past it. The other thing that is just this cannibalization of the audience, right? Because you have to imagine there is some overlap between the people that all these services are assuming will watch these deep fantasy shows, who will also watch. All of the Star Trek shows on CBS All Access and, and also Wars the Mandalorian, yeah. Favreau's Star Wars live action Which show. Which is rumored over the to top. star or uh, feature Werner Herzog. Really? Yeah. Okay, I'm getting more interested. <laughs> yeah. um, it's it's a it's a lot. It's a big ask, but mm-hmm. but but that's also why I bring up this idea of breaking the system because we are not capable of processing all of this, and we're not designed to going week to week talking well, about we've this always stuff, talked but I don't think this. they're making TV for that anymore. They're making content yeah. to exist. Yeah, that's an interesting point, and I, and I I don't know, you know, I've watched a few, uh, like, I've had this conversation a few times with, like, watching some Netflix films that have come out recently, um, or have been released recently, and just feeling like, what's missing here? Mm-hmm. Like, there's, like, a note, I, it's like a note process, there's, like, a, a, a checks and balances mm-hmm. here. But there's also, I think, that this kind of like, it's not a letdown, but it is just an, a huge adjustment we have to make to the way in which where we started this podcast and how we were talking about culture then versus where it is now, which is just this wave after wave after wave of anticipation and release, but not, it's very difficult to have any post-release uh, like appreciation for what you're getting settling in here yeah it's just more and more is coming and i think you see that in the arc of how these things are covered typically something like ozark we've said this before would have been on websites for two months Mm -hmm. after its release because people would be like oh my god the episode six oh my god episode nine what do you think is going to happen at the end of ozark etc now it's just like interviews and pre reviews of people like well i've seen four that's what they made available here's what i think have at it, mm-hmm. and then there are diehards who watch all of it, and then there are people who do it in piecemeal, and then there are people like, Juliet came up to me yesterday and was like, I just started Ozark. It's it's never going to be we're all on the same page again. No. I, I think that the, one of the only, the, one of the things that is not the only thing, but one of the things that's cool about some of these projects is that if they are so huge and so interesting and so deep, maybe they will garner that kind of monocultural response that Game of Thrones did. I guess what I want to know, and I and I mean this very genuinely from people who are fans of, obviously bigger fans of the genre than we are, mm-hmm. but particularly fans of some of these properties, pitch me the version of it where this is mind-expanding and exciting for a non-devotee of the genre. Because obviously you and I consider ourselves to be genre fans. We, we appreciate the application of genre in different ways. And 
you know, our preferred genre, you know, we love crime fiction, sure. for example. And the thing that I always say about crime fiction, I read a lot of books that are essentially the same story that aren't truly exceptional, but they all give me something. And whether that's a little flair, a little flavor, or just a little fun and escapism. But with crime fiction, I, I still firmly believe, and this is also, you know, the thing that I felt about making a TV show in that genre too, is that it is still an, a reliable and incredible way to show real people leading real lives in real places. Mm-hmm. Um, you can learn about cities. You can learn about people and cultures that not, aren't necessarily your own because the role of the detective, you know, in the broadest possible sense, can cross different stratas of society, right? For sure. Um, fantasy. Now, I will say, I got some paperbacks in my back pages. I, as a kid, I mean, I don't know if you went down this road, but I read some Dragonlance books, my dude. <laughs> For real. Sure. Like Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman, those are names that I can say out loud. I read their books, and I loved them. They totally were mind-expanding and exciting and got me reading much more than I already was. Um, But I'm trying to square, like, what I got out of those books versus what I get out of, like, Pelicanos' books. Both books written by adults that I purchased in mass market paperback. And for me, the fantasy books were sort of mind-expanding and exciting in a juvenile to teenage way. And I'm not trying to shit no, on I know what fandom because it's escapism. But in terms of like becoming someone in the world, in terms of, you know, coming to grips with violence or classism or racism or sex, like th- those fantasy books dealt with some of that. But in ways that, to my mind, in my memory, were very, I don't want to say basic, but they were gentle. Sure. You know, and then I didn't want to continue reading books in those genre because I didn't see what they were showing me. So Game of Thrones being a, you know, I think the strongest and loudest and best counter to that argument because those books and the TV show are about people in the same way that those crime books, I think, are about people and and, and their nature. And I I appreciate that. So it's a big question to ask. Tell me, and I know they exist, but what what are the fantasy books giving us and what are the ones that do it for us as It depends on what you want to compare it to. I think I was as moved by Winds of Winter as I was yeah. by almost any episode of any other TV show ever yeah, made. And there's an element to Lost that I think is a fantasy. Do you know what I mean? Like, yes. There's parts of of a lot of the shows that we like that are like this. I think I, under, I understand what you're saying, which is that Game of Thrones actually functioned in a lot of different ways outside of being like service to the text. Yes. and Or and service to the genre, just yes. for the sake of... This, this has to have dragons and swords, so here are dragons and swords. Right, and it, it could be horror, it could be chamber drama, it could be a political drama, it could be a family drama, it could be all these the different things. The genre is the vehicle to get to sure. the place you want to go. And that's what the best part about crime fiction is, is that it does the same thing. It's a, it's just formalism. It's just giving you basic parameters from mm-hmm. which to work on, in. Um, yeah, you're right. Like, I, I think that there's going to be, like, I, I, I always go back to, people have asked us a lot of times to talk about The Expanse, and I, I, there's a lot to admire there. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that has always been really difficult for me to get into The Expanse is just the density of information that you have to process about this imagined world. Mm-hmm. And I know that that sounds stupid because I could say the same thing about, you could say the same thing about Sicario. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not saying that there are one one is better than the other. But I've always just had a hard time like wrapping my head around like, okay, there's like a bunch of different factions and some of them are living on the moon and we got like, and then that, when I was reading summaries of some of these books that we were talking about, I was like, shit, this is pretty complicated. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Although I think sci-fi has been, as a genre, has been a little bit more reliable or at least understandable as for what it can tell us and what it can teach us and what it can be used for. Um, the biggest possible strokes before we move on to our, our, our next topics, 
there's just this there's there's a retrenchment and a stratification happening very clearly and uh you know every one of the shows i'm going to mention is the product of yes corporate thinking and investment but also passionate creators and writers who believe in the story they're telling and i don't want to discount that so but so i'm going not 10,000 feet i'm going 100,000 feet here but to say that i don't like the trend towards there's a star wars show and a winds of rings of winter and time show mm-hmm. wheels of time yeah. narnia on one time. on one hand these giant the tolkien shows these giant you know quarter billion dollar uh, investments. Mm-hmm. And on the other side of it, we have shows. I'm going to name three shows that I admire, one of which I worked on. Uh, Legion, Maniac, Homecoming, which are smaller mm-hmm. shows uh, made by very creative people about what's going on in the mind. Like, so internal. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So we have the biggest possible shows on one hand, and on some level, going internal is not always going to be a small story. I'm really setting myself up in a trap here to even say this. Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind is about one guy. We find out Briar Patch is it's just huge. a dream. Look, I'm, I'm setting myself up for a hundred things every yeah. time I criticize anything anymore. No, and I'm not, not criticizing And I'm not it. criticizing those shows. I just, where is that middle, man? Where is the middle between those things? I don't know. I don't know what's driving that. I, I don't know, because I, I don't want to make sweeping generalizations about the way in which we... Hey, you re- leave that to me. No, but I think that there's an argument to be made that we relate to one another increasingly through barriers. Like, I think that there's a lot more interfacing with screens, interfacing with uh, basically, like, projections of ourselves rather than ourselves. Tribes. And I think that there's a lot of, like, involvement in uh, media where, like... I I don't even think when TV was at its best, TV played this outsized of a role in the public consciousness. True. Like, And at the same time, that perception is actually informed entirely by my narrative, by where I live, by who I talk to, by what I read on the internet. There's lots of people out there who don't give a shit about Netflix and what their plan yeah. is and whether or not they've spent a billion dollars on C.S. Lewis or five dollars on C.S. Lewis. But for me, when, I, when you mention that and you talk about this journey inward that seems to be happening, I think it's something that reflects me maybe, uh, a tendency in people today where it's like, I am more introverted. I am having a little bit of a harder time interfacing with like the world outside of my computer screen. And a lot of the things that happen on your computer screen are fantasy. Yeah, I think that's a great way to look at it. I think that's a really smart reading of things because those shows that I mentioned are all smart and inspired and creative attempts to grapple with Mm -hmm. what I believe to be contemporary problems and issues. Even Lodge 49 is kind of like that too. Another example of a show that uh, we have to revisit but is a small show, proudly so, uh, in an internal show. Um, It's... uh, yeah, it's, it's 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 odd. It's just such an odd landscape, and it's such a um, unbalanced landscape. And you know, we see these bottomless pits um, jumping in, and I think that we were very spoiled by the last ten years about sure. what we've gotten, and we're still very spoiled, obviously, by the amount of entertainment that we have and the luxury we have just to even criticize it on the level that we do. But the the battlefield is changing, and for every show like um, Glow or Mrs. Maisel, which are small, smaller shows um, that are proudly being bankrolled because they're good, yes, but also they get nominated for awards, mm-hmm. which still matters on some level. Everything else has shifted. And we have not talked about Netflix's Tony Danza show or their various baking shows or whatever. Absolutely. But that's their priority. Yeah. We did just talk about Amazon's new priorities. 
And we also haven't talked about that while I was gone, word started to leak out that Apple kind of just wants to be NBC in the 80s. Did you see all that? Yeah. I think that there had been talk before a little bit about what's going to happen when there is a collision between AT&T's values and Time Warner's values when that merger went through. HBO's values more particularly. More particularly. Because HBO is obviously, as 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 any teenager who grew up in the in the 80s and 90s knows, was a bastion of adult-themed, you know, entertainment. Yeah. And uh, even— I, I, I didn't watch Dream On because I was a big Brian Ben-Ben fan. And into the prestige era still had, I would say, gratuitous nudity and violence in mm-hmm. most of their shows. And whether or not that would mesh with AT&T's corporate values— so it was kind of surprising because I think everybody was like, well, we're going to get like a neutered version of the Game of Thrones spinoff because they don't want to put them on yeah. AT&T phones or something like that. And I don't think that that's necessary. By all accounts, that's not going to be the case. But it was very surprising to hear uh, this this report that Apple was looking for like PG-13 and below in terms it, of their content. It's actually – it was surprising at first because I think we all – because I'm look, I'm sitting here looking at your MacBook on the table, and I've you know, and I have an iPhone, and we all use these products and have. <laughs> Did since you we're, pronounce it? My uh, iPhone in, in a phone. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, I never said it out loud before. It's, it's quite a good product. Um, we think of it as a cool company mm-hmm. because it's so dominant in our lives. Companies aren't cool, and particularly companies that have that much money and that much at stake. So when you get into the creative realm. It's kind of, from a business perspective, it's foolish because you're just going to piss someone off unless you make something that everybody loves, which we've just spent 20 minutes saying is impossible. So it kind of makes sense Mm -hmm. that it's going to be an awkward fit for a company that has never been out in these waters before. Mm -hmm. But it's a bummer when, and we haven't seen it again because so far Apple has really just done press releases, but if they're going to spend a billion dollars and they're going to spend a billion dollars to make family-friendly fair— seems unfortunate. And that also will shift the dynamics in the industry again as to what's getting made and what's getting championed. Yeah. The collision between art and commerce is always going to be a fascinating conversation, but it's always going to be a one-sided fight. Not when your boy Young Chomsky's on this podcast. <laughs> Let's take a quick break. We'll come back and talk about Barrack Hall A break for ads? <laughs> Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by ADT. ADT can design and install a smart home just for you, backed by 24-7 protection. Explore the vast number of things you can do with your secure smart home, like doorman service, which is an ADT automation that unlocks the door for packages, friends, or your kids, or worry-free getaway service, which I love, which lets you arm your system, lock up, and set lighting schedules before you go on vacation. It's all controlled from the ADT app or the sound of your voice and backed by 24-7 protection. Don't worry about installing and configuring your system. ADT will D-I-F-Y do it for you. Just visit ADT.com slash smart to learn more about how ADT can design and install a secure smart home just for you. All right, we want to talk about two more things. Mm-hmm. Uh, Better Call Saul, Monday. This shouldn't take too long because while it was an emotionally trenchant episode, I think it was very much a little bit of a stall. Did anything happen? Well, why are you, are you being... I'm just kidding. Like, that's the, that's the <laughs> thing about this show. It's I mean, just... he, didn't, he, he didn't get... He didn't pass his bar. You know, he didn't get brought back into being a lawyer. That's true. And I'm sure that story will end there. That's it. <laughs> um, it this was... 
this was a good episode. Yeah. Right? I mean, they're all good episodes. Breaking Bad writer Jennifer Hutchinson wrote it. Breaking Bad creator Vince Gilligan directed it. It looked great. Uh, it, wrote, it felt great. And it, it, I think the only thing was that you were just waiting for something much more significant to happen in this episode, especially with regards to the German engineers. I'm all in on Kai, by the way. Well, let's talk about this. Let's talk about the way the show... We, we, I joked... I already made the joke that the show is kind of predictable or whatever. It's not. And it, the way it's not is always fascinating, purely from a story perspective. We met Werner and his boys. We met Werner first. Love the character. Mm-hmm. Beautifully cast. They've done a wonderful job. Episode by episode, making us care about this guy, making us understand this guy, making us look forward to seeing him inter- interact. Just him at the bar, kind of being wistful, the, the, the foreshadowing of Mike getting him out of the bar by being like, your wife is calling, and his reaction to that. How about his, just from the very first time we met him, how uncomfortable physically he was on this long journey. Sure. Um, the relationship with Mike. Meanwhile, we are being set up from jump to think that Kai is going to be trouble. Kai is going to be the problem. Kai is going to whatever he's going to do. It was Werner. The whole time. It's not complicated the way they set it up, but it is elegant. And And painstaking. And painstaking and leading us to something that, you know, impatient me, uh, that I asked for on Monday, which is let's see some bumps on the road, the downhill road for Mike, Mm -hmm. as he basically continues his successful career as someone who can accomplish anything. Right. This guy and usually it, doesn't fail. Or when he fails, there's no there's no EKG spike. No, yeah. exactly. What he's probably going to have to do to his buddy Werner on Monday might be a significant spike <laughs> yeah, or right. bump along the road. Um, he what, might contract that out to some of Gus's guys, though. <laughs> I don't know, man. Yeah. He takes it kind of personally. He's learned a little bit of German. Uh-huh. What do you think about... Um, well, let, I, obviously, we're going to talk Kim, Kim, Jimmy stuff. Uh-huh. Um, very hard to do a portmanteau when you ship that couple because is it just— It's just Kimmy. Or Jim? <laughs> <laughs> it's not—no wonder the internet's not going nuts over this. McGexler? Oh, that's good. That's, that's good. That's better. Um, I just wanted to also say that I love Lalo. Tony Dalton. He's good, man. He's great. Yeah. He's great. The thing about the show that I want to really focus on in this little bit that we're talking about it today before we talk about the finale next week is it doesn't waste at bats. That's something that you have to do when you're operating on a high level, but also when you're making a it show. It doesn't waste at bats, but it takes a lot of balls. It t- oh, my God. T- this, the, uh, it takes a lot of pitches. Dude, the uh, sabermetric crowd loves this show. Yes, yes. Huge that's, on that's base percentage. That's a really percentage. good way of looking at it. It's a, it is a advanced analytics show. Yeah, it doesn't really hit a lot of home runs, but it gets on base a lot constantly. And it takes it sees a lot of pitches uh-huh. and it doesn't waste at bats. And when you have the opportunity, because I, I'm sure everyone listening knows this or remembers this, but when the character of Saul Goodman was introduced in the Better Call I mean in the Breaking Bad episode called Better Call Saul, he's taken out to the desert and thinks he's he thinks he's gonna be killed by Walter and Jesse. And he says something like, Did Ignacio send you uh, Lalo did it, or the, the reverse of that. But he mm-hmm. names these names. And so Ignacio is Nacho, and we've known him since season one. So we're waiting for the other shoe to drop. Who's this other guy? They wait because they have this luxury of time until season four. They cast it beautifully. And he's a charming motherfucker. He's a different speed that we've seen on this show. Yeah. And I love his Spanish as much as I love his English. 
I'm excited by his presence in a way that um, he's given a jolt to all the things I was, again, poor, impatient me complaining about on Monday, saying, well, Gus Fring is Gus Fring, but what are we going to do with him? Suddenly, he's getting he's getting getting the high heat. Yeah. And it's more interesting. Um, my tone on the show remains one of just admiration. Yeah. Less than passion, uh, which is different than passion. And I just love every week— uh, they have something where I'm just like, ah, oh, goddamn it, you guys really pulled that scene off. Whether mm-hmm. it's the blueprint switching with with uh, with Jimmy coming in wearing a Jimmy Buffett T-shirt and spilling breast milk on the on the on the plans. Who among us? And it's just like every week there's something where I'm like, how are they going to get out of this scene? I don't know how she's going to flip. How's she going to switch the plans? And it's not even just like, hey, look over there, and they switch them. It's like, man, this was just like so precisely plotted out. It's a lot. Yeah. What? It's almost like the people who are writing this show get such like a contact high from like playing with these cons or playing with these process scenes, whether it's Mike investigating the warehouse, whether yes. it's Kim and Jimmy switching the blueprints, whatever it is. And, and what the other thing that, that I can't help but think, not just as a fan of the show, but of a fan of how TV is made and, and now someone who's done it a little bit, like what better use of a writer's room than getting together a bunch of smart people mm-hmm. who know what they're doing and say, well, she wants to switch the plans. Let's go. Pitch right, me. Right. Pitch me all the versions of it. Best idea wins. And you know it came out of something like that, and you can feel the excitement of that as it's happening. What do you think of this delay? I mean, I think it's going to be resolved one way or another in this finale, and my gut feeling is that it's he's going to somehow get his license back by burning Kim's or something. What do you think of that delay, of, of him getting it back, of the Chuck shadow over it? What do you expect to see? What would you like to see? Would you like another season of him not being a lawyer? I wonder whether or not we're coming up on a time jump. Another one, because they already did one to get through this year. Yeah. Uh, An um, eight-month jump or nine-month, whatever. Was it? Because she gets her cast off. She gets her cast off, and it's been, you know, I think he's basically, he's done the first few months of his check-in. Yeah, so he's gone through a full year. It it was about an eight- or nine-month jump. Okay. I don't know. I can't imagine really... I, I I mean, leave it to those writers to figure it out. I don't know whether or not I want to see him doing small jobs and then I suppose he could become a consultant. You know, he could basically be like, I can give you all the information you need to give to your public defender or something like that. I think it's time to see him doing what he's doing. Yeah. Um, I mean, he way, said in that diner, he's like, they all know me as Saul Goodman. Yeah, we're getting there. And she's like, it's details. I mean, it's happening. Shout out to Kim Bixby, who played the uh, person in the committee who asked him what the law meant to him. Veteran, the woman who gave Kendall Roy his drink in episode seven. And six breaking or seven. news, she will be the new Captain America. She will be the new Captain America, Captain <laughs> Stephanie Connors. And she's a, <laughs> and she was a Briar Patch, I have to say. She, and she's a wonderful actor. Where are you with Kim? Because the one thing that I realize, I think everyone is conditioned, despite the show constantly telling us that it's taking its time with everything and that the more surprising outcome is probably more satisfying than the shocking and violent one. Everyone's like, oh, Kim's doomed, Kim's doomed. That's the one thing that we're watching, on, you know, that we're waiting on that's unknown on this show. Kim may be doomed in some ways. I don't think Kim is doomed on Monday because if you take her out of this show, I don't think you have. No, I don't think. I don't think I don't you have think a viable show anymore. We'll see if Kim on Monday. No, no, not at all. I think she's around for a while. She has to be. Yeah. Okay. Okay. What are you going to go see this weekend? Because we've got a Star Is Born and Venom, and we got to choose one for the pod. I think I'm going to definitely see Star Is Born. I want to be very honest with you because I think I owe that to you and to our listeners. If you're like, I don't care about A Star is Born, I'm over it. I don't, I won't see any movies this weekend. Okay. This but is what I Monday will morning. do is drop my older child off at school and go see a movie in 
quickly and come podcast with you about it. You don't want me to say I kind of don't care about A Star Is Born? I mean, you can. Well, this has clearly <laughs> talk talk. Pitch me on these, okay? Because so the really office interesting is really, is that, really yeah, in on this. People are fired up about A Star Is Born. I think Why? A Star Is Born is going to get nominated for Best Picture. I yeah. think it's just like it's it's everything uh, that we're supposed to think that the movies can do. You right. know, it's this transporting huge romantic look at like the culture industry writ large. It's myth making. It's got performance aspects in terms of like the live the live music scenes. And I think it's like a big love story, which I don't I don't think we've had in a drama in a really long time. It's yeah. been re- mostly relegated to to rom coms. Um, Venom very well. I mean, it's projected to make more money than a Star is Born, which would be kind of funny in terms of like what people value versus what actually winds up you yes. know succeeding. Uh, but I'm I'm really excited to see A Star Is Born. The first hour is supposed to be fucking incredible. Uh, yeah. by all even Anthony Lane liked it in yeah. The New Yorker. Okay, let's take away the suspense. I'll, I'm going to go see A Star Is okay. Born. Okay, but I I can't. Can I just take a moment to say I can't fucking believe there's a Venom movie. Yeah, Venom is real dumb, everybody. <laughs> and our colleague and friend David Shoemaker wrote a good piece today. Uh huh. On, on the, the ringer.com. Yeah. And I have to say I really enjoyed the piece. And there are a couple pull quotes that I would take out to really, like, explain. But I do think that he pulled his punch at the end by saying, like, you know, the thing about this character is that he's stupid and pointless, and that's what's great about him. Yo, it's not great. Doesn't that tie into what we're talking about? Yes. Is that if it's at all related to this, if this, if there's just, like, a capital city of Spider-Man, if we can just get a, an expurb movie going about that, then let's go for it. The crazy thing is that Tom Hardy and Michelle Williams are in And it. Riz Ahmed. <laughs> yeah. And Reed Scott. I guess that's not as crazy. <laughs> and can I spoil who's in the post credit sequence? I guess I shouldn't. But a major actor that we like a lot is in the post credit sequence to play an even dumber character <laughs> in the sequel. I mean, it's... Just to recap, everybody. In a Marvel promotional event in the 80s that was designed to sell toys called Secret Wars, Spider-Man got a sentient alien costume that was black, which was also to sell more toys because you could sell a different costume. In the Shoemaker article, he said he reveals something that I didn't even know, which was the idea of Spider-Man getting a cool, different colored alien costume was sent in by a Spider-Man fan in Illinois named Randy who suggested it in a letter and Marvel editor-in-chief Jim Shooter, if you want to know more about him, read our friend Sean Howe's book, Marvel Comics, The Untold Story, wrote a letter back saying, Randy, I want to buy this idea. Here's 220 bucks. <laughs> It was Randy just like, holy shit! Can you imagine? <laughs> imagine, like, Stranger Things, but the first 20 minutes of Risky Business, yeah. that's Randy. Anyway, it's an alien costume that has a tongue and teeth. That's it, man. So either I think you've got to go full Deadpool and but be like, like, this is about a isn't costume. Isn't he like Glenn Greenwald in this movie? Like, he's <laughs> yes. like this investigative reporter? I'm a reporter, yeah! It's Tom Hardy being that reporter okay. in San Francisco. It's just, I don't understand. This does seem to be, because of like the the high-class imprimatur of the actors they got involved in it, by doing so, the denial of what it is, this does seem to be the empty, slobbering alien costume of movies. Yes. It does not make they any sense. They asked Tom Hardy what his favorite part of Venom was. <laughs> this is incredible, too. What it, a legend. It is among the 30 to 40 minutes that they cut out of it. <laughs> including some hardcore puppetry. Yeah. There was rumors that this was supposed to be like a hard R movie, 
the executive producer is now saying like there's not like an R-rated version right. of this lying around. Like this is the movie that we shot. Like yeah. it was always supposed to push the limits of PG-13 basically. Sure. Whatever. You know, I mean, just make the fucking Deadpool movie Do- if you want to make it. Like I don't understand. I don't I don't how are we in 2018 and we still get up to the editing process and you guys are like, "Oh, actually it needs to be PG-13." Like do you think anybody is just like my 13-year-old can't go my to an 12 R- and a half year yeah, old? Yeah, are you kidding me? Like, where is this? We're not, it's not Tipper Gore's America. Nobody's stopping their kid from seeing Deadpool. Do, Kids see Deadpool. Do you think we are approaching, do you think Tom Hardy is in any sort of professional jeopardy here? Because we don't, we don't know him. We never met him. We are huge fans of his work. Yes. But this is a dude who goes full fucking method, right? Like he, he, he does the voice Yeah, but it's all his the time. method. It's not like he's like, I'm going to be Venom. He's like, I've decided. Yes. Which, that this is an, an Italian-American San Franciscan journalist who becomes yes. a Spider-Man offshoot. Right? And then, when he's done, we'll be like, I'm sorry, which microphone is on? Which camera am I looking at? <laughs> this movie sucks. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, people are watching that. Like, yeah. that stuff matters. Yeah. I feel like. But then again, Tom Hardy, one of the great cinematic artists of our time, was like, tenting his fingers like fucking Joe Nacera in the classic NY Times opinion page days. Right. And was just like, What's Tom Hardy's franchise going to be? Hmm, the slobbering space costumes, the one for me, mate. <laughs> so, Shout out to Randy. So the decision-making yeah. here is suspect up and down the board. But I just feel like if you start with something stupid, I don't know how you end up with something better than stupid. Like, I, I get you. That, that's kind of, I'm just looking at the supply chain here. I think right? that anything can be made into a good thing. I think that you don't need to handicap yourself by starting with a bad thing. What I would like to know, Kevin Feige, who gets a lot of credit from everyone, so I don't feel like we need to, to jump on the train here. Are but you coming for Feige now? No, I'm actually going to say, <laughs> oh, I'm going to bring it all back, baby. I just put my arms around the whole conversation. Are you ready for this? Here comes the context lasso. Randy! It's that if we're saying the thing about Game of Thrones that made it special is that it was able to convey what its core concept was outside of its intended or inevitable audience. The thing that Feige's done so well is he could reduce every major Marvel character to the logline that is appeals to the general population. Right? And and Spider-Man, obviously he was eager to get Spider-Man away from Sony or to borrow back from Sony because it's it, he's the simplest one of all. With great power comes great responsibilities. A high school kid who has equal troubles in both worlds. Like, we get that. Mm-hmm. Right? If he was in charge of more than the Spider-Man part of Sony's little fiefdom within Marvel... Would he have greenlit a Venom movie? Because Venom doesn't have any reason to exist, especially outside of Spider-Man. Do you get what I'm saying? I, I totally get what you're saying. I, I, think, I think the decisions Feige, he's made we, has been we very— We will look back on the 2008 to like 2012-13 era where some the, really bad Marvel movies got made or some pretty like fine movies. Like Thor the Dark World? Yeah, and we're going to look back and we're going to be like, that guy got to like mess around and fail a couple of times, which is now because there's so much scrutiny on like, did you set up properly the next cinematic movie universe? L- yeah. It's like, no, you can't fail. So if they make a bad Venom movie, like the whole thing falls apart. But look, this isn't, this also isn't rocket science. If you look at the Marvel movies that didn't work, they failed the simplest question of all, which is, why do you exist? Now, the second Thor movie existed because they had made a framework of momentum to get to the Avengers. And they were like, we'll make another one. The Avengers movie, the first one, didn't work. And the reason why, why do you exist? Because it would be cool to have everybody together. Mm -hmm. There's no reason behind that. 
But they got through those movies. You're right because of where they were on the development curve and on everything. Why did they? Why do they exist now? Well, now we care about these people individually, right. and they are making them like TV shows. Right. This Avengers Infinity War plus next year's movie is just the next season of the show of these actors that we like to hang out with, right? And then the only one that kind of you wonder if it would still pass the test are those Ant-Man movies. And the answer is, well, they're fun. Sure. They're fun. Sure. In quotes sometimes, but they're fun. And all the DC movies and all the Joker movies and all that, they fail that test. There's no reason for them to exist other than Kevin Sujihara's giant world domination plan where he announced release dates through 2025. That's right. Except for Aquaman. I know why that exists. And I'll tell you next week. He talks to fish. Until cool. Monday. <laughs> are we ending on this weird low note? Yeah, like, I have nothing else. What are we talking about next week, buddy? Fucking stars born, dog. Yes. <laughs> yeah. We're coming out of the shallows? Yeah, and then we'll talk next Thursday, Better Call Saul finale. We have some guests coming through in the next couple of days. Yeah, finish Maniac for next week, everybody, for next Thursday. There you go. That's something that you could do for reasons that we'll discuss next week. Okay. His name's Jackson Maine. <laughs> That's his name? Yeah. It's supposed to be based vaguely on Caleb Fallowell from uh, Kings of Leon. Sure. Terrific. Do he, <laughs> did he come up with that name himself, or do you think he paid a bunch of people to, like, workshop the name? Because it's a, it's a great name. Are we, is the mic still going? Do you want to know if there's a writer's room coming up with Bradley Cooper character names? Yes, and I'd like to apply. <laughs> okay, fine. Have a good weekend. Today's episode of The Watch was brought to you by ADT. ADT can design and install a smart home just for you, backed by 24-7 protection. It features services like Doorman Service, which is an ADT automation that unlocks doors for packages, friends, or your kids, or Turndown Service, an ADT automation that arms your system, locks your doors, and turns down your lights and thermostat. All controlled from the ADT app or the sound of your voice and backed by 24-7 protection. Just visit ADT.com slash smart to learn more about how ADT could design and install a secure smart home just for you.